Welcome to the newsroom. I'm Ben Schachman. Thank you for joining us. On this episode, we're digging into the North Carolina unauthorized substance tax, sometimes called the drug tax. I have to say, researching the tax for this episode, I ran into a lot of people who had never heard about it. In fact, outside of law enforcement, a few legal experts, and a small group of advocates, almost everyone I told about this had basically the same response. What? Yeah, that's probably because when you start to think about it, the drug tax sounds a little bit, well, absurd. Almost no one pays the tax on their own. It is, with very few exceptions, imposed on people after they are arrested, a process that is, for several reasons we'll get into later, problematic. But first, let's look at what the unauthorized substance tax basically says. Anyone who comes into possession of an illegal substance over a certain amount has to pay a tax on it. You have 48 hours to report the substance and the amount to the North Carolina Department of Revenue, that's the NCDOR. Then you pay the tax and you receive an official stamp, which you have to affix to the container of the substance, whether that's a brick of cocaine or a jug of moonshine or whatever. Now, this doesn't go for smaller amounts of drugs. If someone hands you a joint at a party, you don't need to get up and head to the tax office the next day. But if it's more than 42.5 grams, that's about an ounce and a half, of cannabis, more than 7 grams of cocaine or heroin, or more than 10 doses of a drug that's been packaged up for individual resale, like a bindle of heroin, a tab of acid, or an MDMA-based pill, then you owe the NCDOR money. That also goes for alcohol, which is why it's more accurate to call this the unauthorized substance tax, since it includes drugs and alcohol. In fact, the tax law covers pretty much the whole process of unlicensed alcohol production and sale, from the mash used to make moonshine to the liquor to a mixed drink sold without an ABC permit. For any amount of any one of those, you owe the NCDOR money. And it's not a small amount of money. The cheapest tax is for mash. Now that's the soupy mixture of grains and water that, if you let it ferment, makes alcohol. That starts at $1.28 a gallon. But you have to keep in mind it takes a lot of mash to make a smaller amount of liquor, which is also taxed at around $12 a gallon, or over $30 a gallon when it's sold as an individual mixed drink. So it all adds up. But the serious money comes from illegal drugs. In bulk, the tax is $50 per gram for drugs like heroin and cocaine. That's regardless of purity but the cost goes up when the drugs are portioned out. It's $200 for 10 doses. So let's do a little quick math here. If a dealer portions out a tenth of a gram into 10 bags or bindles, that makes a gram total with a tax of $200. So four times higher when the drugs are portioned out. Now there is a certain logic here. More serious drugs rate a higher tax and being parceled up seems to indicate the intent to distribute. To learn more about this, I called up Phil Dixon, a former criminal defense attorney and public defender who now teaches public defense education at the UNC School of Government. Dixon told me the amounts, at least for drugs, more or less line up with the intent to distribute. If it's sold by dose, then it's more than 10 doses. If it's sold by gram, then it's more than seven grams. And, you know, I think those are a little more clean, you know, fit a little more neatly. That's that probably indicates distribution. But again, it just it just all depends. Right. I mean, if it's 10 doses, of, I don't know, like LSD. I mean, that's probably that's more than one person would take at a time. But it doesn't necessarily indicate that they're selling. But, you know, I mean, that's just where that's the policy decision the legislature's made with these laws is here. This is where the limits are. Cannabis, in particular, doesn't really line up, especially when you look at the amounts that are now legal for personal use in other states. It kicks in at 42 and a half grams of marijuana, which, correct me my math if I'm wrong, but I think that's less than two ounces. 
not like a cartel level di- distributor. Um, and that well could be a personal amount, but it's, um, you know, it's also not, um, somebody's, you know, a typical user's, you know, couple days worth of, of the, the substance. Okay. So before we go any further, we got to talk about the elephant in the room, which is this law seems to have at least one major flaw. Paying the taxes on illegal or illicit substances doesn't make those substances legal. So not to put too fine a point on it, who the hell would willingly pay the tax on something that's illegal? It's worth pointing out that because requiring the tax payments seems like it would amount to a kind of potentially unconstitutional self-incrimination, there are firewalls set up around the process. The NCDOR is legally prohibited from sharing tax information with anyone, including law enforcement or prosecutors, and those who pay their taxes can do so anonymously. Although, put a pin in that because it's not always that easy. But even with those safeguards, who is paying a tax on drugs? According to a WRAL interview from 2010, NCDOR said it processed around 5 to 6,000 cases a year, but since the program started in the early 90s, just over 100 of those cases were from people who actually voluntarily went to a tax office and paid for a stamp. I asked Phil Dixon about this. Uh, I, you know, I'm just, I'm hypothetically curious. I was, yeah, to, be, all right, to be candid, I was shocked that that number wasn't zero, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Like, I'm surprised that anyone took it upon themselves to go and get the stamp for the illicit property. Yeah, well, it's, I mean, that's what I'm saying, though. It's probably just people like me or you or, you know, stamp collector kind of people that were like, ooh, this is cool. I can get this. I'll, I'll have a cocaine stamp you know, <laughs> added to my collection. I, I doubt it's for actually affixing it to cocaine that's going to be distributed or, or, or you know, possessed. Okay, so again, almost no one proactively pays this tax but there are benefits to doing so. Those who have the tax assessed on them after an arrest, that's the most common way the tax is applied, also end up owing fines, fees, and interest. So there is a real benefit to paying the tax up front. But can you even do that? In particular, can you do that while protecting your anonymity, a right guaranteed by the tax law? Phil Dixon's one-time colleague, Jonathan Holbrook, asked this question. He's a fellow school of government guy and a former state and federal prosecutor who wrote an influential 2019 blog post about the unauthorized substance tax. Dixon told me the blog post seemed to have actually encouraged NCDOR to update their practices. As you saw in my my colleague's blog post, um, he tried to go do that by visiting a DOR office in person and got really got the runaround and was not able to successfully purchase stamps in person. Um, and was directed basically to do it by mail, which makes it a whole lot harder to remain anonymous and, uh, and to meet the 48-hour deadline. It looks to me like he added an update at the end of that blog saying since then, DOR, you know, possibly in response to his article, um, has now made it where any of the walk-in centers, you, you are supposedly able to go by these. And I'd be really interested to try because I'd love to have them framed on my wall or something. And so if you look into this more and find that they are, in fact, easy to get and anonymous, easy to obtain anonymously and quickly, I'd be interested to know about it. So I decided to try it out. After I got off the phone with Dixon, I went to the NCDOR website, which recommends making an appointment. So I signed up for one of those at the Wilmington office and filled out a form saying I wanted to pay $1.28 in unauthorized substance tax on one gallon of mash. Because although I love my job, I'm not sure I would get reimbursed by WHQR for buying a $200 cocaine stamp. Anyway, the next day, a woman from NCDR Wilmington called me and told me, Hi, this message is for Benjamin 
Fetchman from Collins in North Carolina, Department of Revenue. I'm calling in reference to an appointment request um, that you made for the Wilmington office. Um, it looks like you want to purchase a tax stamp. So you can go by the office on Friday. You don't have to have an appointment. Um, we are open on Fridays. You can just go by there and get your tax stamp. So I did. All right, well, here I am, sitting in a parking lot outside the offices of the Internal Revenue Service and the North Carolina Department of Revenue off of uh, Randall Parkway here in the middle of Wilmington. I'm going to go into the DOR office, and I am going to pay taxes on illegal mash. Here we go. I went inside, took the elevator to the second floor, and found the tiny NCDOR office tucked off to one side. The staff were friendly and asked for my paperwork, that is, the assessment form that's often given to people either by law enforcement or through the mail from NCDOR following an arrest. Uh, I, need, I need to pay my taxes on illegal substances. Okay. Um, do you have the letter or the, the code that came with it? I, the code that came with it? It's like an A-N colon. It's like your case ID. Oh, no, no, no. I haven't been arrested. Oh, you're looking for the, the stamps? I would just like to do the right thing and pay my taxes on uh, illicit substances. Okay. Uh, I'll have to see. Let me ask, do you have like the illegal substances and you're trying to get the stamps that are put on them? Yes. Okay. I would like to be in compliance with North Carolina tax law. Yeah. Give me one second. Sure. It's a very rare occurrence, and I'm going to make sure we get it Sure, sure. As staff said, this is rare, although they did tell me one guy had come into their office a few months earlier to pay his taxes up front on cocaine. Was he a stamp collector, an academic, or another journalist? Or maybe just a drug trafficker with a strangely strong civic belief in the tax code? We will never know. What I do know is that, to put it mildly, the office staff were stumped, and over the next hour and 15 minutes, they went through their filing cabinets, made calls to another NCDOR office, and consulted various guidebooks, all in an attempt to figure out how to process my $1.28 in tax on one gallon of mash. So, I did a little light Googling. I think you need the B1L. A major issue seemed to be that I wanted to pay anonymously. As Phil Dixon and his colleague had both pointed out, several facets of the tax process were kind of contradictory, requiring people to pay anonymously by, for example, filing through the mail and giving their name and address, or coming into the office and paying with a check or debit card, which would have their name on it. I wanted to pay in cash, which, unless they were going to fingerprint it, would be pretty anonymous. Now, while I waited, an older woman came in to pay the unauthorized tax for her son, who she said was incarcerated. She was in and out in less than five minutes. She had a payment plan, and I'll leave the details out, but it was a monthly amount, and it wasn't small. I followed her out into the hallway and spoke to her briefly. She declined to be interviewed, saying it was, quote, too damn sad to talk about. She did tell me she had been paying for years and would be paying for years to come. Back in the NCDOR office, the staff had finally figured it out, and I have to say, they tackled this challenge with something like actual enjoyment. From their conversations, it seemed like I had shaken up what was usually a pretty dry routine in their drab, windowless office. Then there was one final minor hurdle. The NCDR office couldn't make change, so I had to run to the store and get exactly one dollar, one quarter, and three pennies. Alright, one dollar and twenty. 
And that just gets fixed right to the container, I suppose, still? Yeah. yeah. So it's one stamp per item, I guess. Okay. So in your situation. Then I was in possession of one tax stamp for one gallon of illegal mash, which, with a wink and a smile, one of the staff members told me I could reuse on future batches of moonshine. So, points for customer service. I don't know. I have to wonder if I was someone else paying for a different kind of stamp under different circumstances if things would have been quite so friendly. Sitting in my car in the parking lot, I noticed the serial number of the stamp was W001. I have one North Carolina Department of Revenue official receipt. I've got my BD1L unauthorized substance tax return form stamped today, August 26th, 2022, and this adorable little metallic yellow stamp, unauthorized substance, one gal M, assuming that means mash, uh, the issue number is W001, so I'm guessing that is the first one issued, at least in a while. So there you have it, folks. So it's safe to say that while the NCDOR process may be a little smoother than it was when Jonathan Holbrook's SOG blog came out, it's still not really designed for people who want to abide by the tax code and pay what's due to the state. It is, by all appearances, designed to generate revenue for law enforcement. And if that's not its intent, that is certainly its effect. Over the last 10 years, the unauthorized substance tax has generated roughly $1.8 million for the New Hanover County Sheriff's Office and roughly $800,000 for the Wilmington Police Department. Later in the show, we'll talk about how local law enforcement feels about this revenue and the tax program itself. But for now, how does this work financially? Well, when a law enforcement agency arrests someone who allegedly has drugs or illicit liquor in their possession, the agency notifies NCDOR. After that, there's no communication between the two. The criminal process and the civil tax process don't cross paths in any way, except that whichever law enforcement reports the substance, whether that's moonshine, marijuana, or MDMA, gets 75% of the tax revenue that's eventually received. That's a powerful incentive to fill out the NCDOR paperwork after an arrest. And this is where all kinds of problems come in, according to critics of the tax law. First, there's the notification process. NCDOR sends a letter notifying the person they owe taxes on the amount of drugs or alcohol law enforcement said they had. This process makes it very unlikely that the person could pay their taxes within the 48-hour period laid out by law, but it also means a lot of people miss the 45-day deadline to negotiate or dispute their taxes with the State Office of Revenue. As Phil Dixon told me, the process is imperfect. I saw that happen a lot where, you know, the address that the cops gave, that the police officers gave to DOR isn't necessarily where the person is right now. He's in, he's in custody right now because he got caught with trafficking amounts of, of heroin or cocaine or something. And so it's easy to miss that notice. And I don't, I don't think that's, I don't, I don't think that gets you out of it uh, if you claim, you know, sorry, I, I missed the letter. In some cases, as we'll hear about later on the show, people are convicted and they serve their time, but they only find out later after they're released that they owe this tax, including interests and fines. It's also worth noting that the firewall between NCDOR and law enforcement cuts both ways. While DOR doesn't report tax payment to the police, meaning the cops aren't coming to your door if you pay the tax proactively, DOR doesn't get notified that a criminal charge has been reduced or dismissed. 
So, people who are cleared of all criminal charges, found completely innocent, can still end up owing serious taxes, fines, fees, and interest. And that's why you could get the result of being found not guilty in your criminal case, but still pay, having to pay the tax in your civil case. Uh, DOR is still going to want their pound of flesh. The NCDOR can get that pound of flesh by withholding tax returns, garnishing wages, and even repossessing property. In fact, NCDOR's website has links to the four companies it sells repossessed property to for auction. Because NCDOR uses civil means, not criminal, this isn't technically double jeopardy, although it can certainly seem that way to the people assessed with the tax. Like many other taxes, you can fight this. Even after the 45-day deadline, it's likely you can negotiate a payment plan or a lump sum payoff to the NCDOR, not dissimilar to the kind of deals the IRS will sometimes offer. But negotiating with NCDOR can be tricky, and it helps to have legal representation. And that's not something a public defender offers, at least not in New Hanover County, according to what Chief Public Defender Jennifer Harjo told me. So, if you ask law enforcement, the NC Unauthorized Substance Tax provides valuable revenue without burdening the taxpayer and only punishes people participating in criminal activity. But the reality is far more complicated. Sometimes, yes, it is a drug trafficker, rightfully convicted, who ends up paying these fines. But sometimes, it's a family member, like the mother I met in the NCDOR office. And sometimes, it's a totally innocent person. That's what really frustrates advocates who would like to see this law changed or abolished. Okay, coming up after the break, we'll talk more about what law enforcement does with the revenue from the tax. But first, we'll talk to one of the advocates who thinks it should be abolished, Daquan Peters with the Second Chance Alliance. You're listening to The Newsroom. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Newsroom. I'm Ben Schachman. On this episode, we're talking about a little-known law with a complicated legacy, the North Carolina Unauthorized Substances Tax. Earlier in the show, we laid out how the tax works, or sometimes doesn't work, and a little about some of its potential pitfalls. Now, I want to talk to an advocate who has been a staunch critic of the tax, Daquan Peters, New Hanover Coordinator for the Second Chance Alliance. That's a statewide organization that advocates for some systemic changes to the justice system. We struck up a conversation when he spoke out against the Wilmington Police Department's proposal to use revenue from the drug tax to build a law enforcement museum. Peters made it clear that he had no objection with WPD having a museum. It was the revenue source and the law behind it that he had a problem with. We spoke briefly for that story, but I could tell there was a lot more to unpack, so we wanted to have him back for this show. So, Daquan Peters, thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I don't know how much you want to get into this, but can you give us a little bit of your background about how you got into this work? Well, in 2007, I was uh, arrested for a distribution of five grams or more crack cocaine, and um, Ultimately, I was sentenced to 262 months for distribution of uh, more than five grams of um, crack cocaine. I served a couple of weeks short of serving 12 and a half years off of that. Um, when Donald Trump signed the First Step Act in 2018, it made the 100 to 1 crack cocaine ratio, which Obama dropped down to 18 to 1 in 2010, but it wasn't fully retroactive for those that were still incarcerated. 
Um, and it didn't apply to career offenders and those who had enhancements. So when Donald Trump signed it and made it that act law, it freed a lot of guys that was in there under the old 100 to 1 crack cocaine ratio. I was one of the ones that received that. And so for people who don't know, that ratio, the sort of disproportionate sentencing, how did that work? <laughs> Pretty much as if it, it works like this. If you have five grams of crack, that's equivalent to 500 grams of powder cocaine. And that guideline will, if you got five grams, a person can have a half a key or five keys of cocaine, and you can receive the same amount of time they got. Or ultimately, you can get more time than they got. So what that's saying is, in essence, is the person who's more likely to get caught with five grams of crack is a black guy. A person who's likely to get more, you know, caught with five keys of cocaine would be someone white or somewhere in a higher tier. Um, so the law was pretty much saying that it disproportionately affected the black community and the guy, it was a disparity within the guidelines. That's how we got here. So after you got out, this was 2019? Yeah, I came home. Next month to be three years since I've been home. Wow. So I came home. I got released September the 20th, 2019. From that point, while I was in prison, while everybody was running to the rec yard and indulging in all of the things that was going on in prison, I was educating myself because I've sat and watched every senator. I watched everyone state that this law is not right. They made a mistake. I began to educate myself on how bills came out. When bills come out, we get those bills. We go through those bills and see if that bill can potentially free us. So by doing that, I surrounded myself with a lot of people in the law library. I began to spend four to six hours a day in the law library studying case law, fighting my case because I knew that I didn't deserve to be in prison for 22 years for this. While in there, I began, like I say, study. So when I came home, I knew that I had to become an asset to my community instead of a liability. That's when I began, I started working with, uh, I started volunteering. I was going to the Second Chance Alliance meetings. I was looking for any organization that was out here that was fighting for criminal justice, uh, so-called reform, because we don't believe that it needs to be reformed. The system needs to be completely dismantled and built back up by people who reflect and identify with us and our issues and our ideas. So because of that, I began to go into all of these meetings and stuff, um, surrounding myself with different types of people. You know, I knew I had to come home and change my people, places, and things. I knew I had a voice. You know, and I, and, and I left a lot of good people in prison that people just forgot about. They don't even see you as a human. You just completely in there. And a lot of those people uh, deserve to be home, you know, based off of some of the laws that was written. So therefore, I came home. I wanted to be able to change laws, help people to see the impact of what these laws did to people. And now I'm here. You know, I, I, I just can't stop, you know. I'm, I, I deal with survivor's remorse. You know, I deal with survivor's remorse. I'm here, but a lot of people are in there. So I have no other choice but to come out here and fight for people. You feel like you owe it to people. I owe it. I owe it to my community more than anything. I owe it to my family. I owe it to myself. I owe it to a whole lot of different, you know, it's a different, you know, different variables, you know. So the law we're talking about today is the North Carolina Unauthorized Substance Tax Program. Some people just call it the North Carolina Drug, Drug Tax. tax yeah. And looking at how it impacts maybe the most vulnerable communities. And I want to get this out of the way up front, is that I know I'm going to hear from people 
about talking about this drug tax, which I haven't seen covered much in the news. Um, I'm relatively new to this. I think a lot of people are. But some of the feedback we've gotten so far was they are imagining this is like recently the uh, U.S. Marshals auctioned off a yacht, like an ultra yacht down, you know, like some high high level cartel trafficker. They, they got his yacht and they're selling it off. And I think sometimes that's what people are thinking about. And that's where the lack of sympathy comes from. They're saying, uh, we got one comment that was something like, yeah, you know, boo-hoo, cry me a river, you know, a drug trafficker has to lose one of their benzes. Um, but that is not what we're talking about. But I do want to address that misconception yeah, right now. Emphatically, emphatically not what we're talking about. In fact, North Carolina, okay, the North Carolina Unauthorized Controlled Substance Act, which is the North Carolina Drug Tax, which was enacted as a part of the failed war on drugs in an exercise tax to on the actual and constructive possession of illegal drugs. So what that means is a person can, get, can just be riding in a car. You and I can be riding in the car. You could be with someone, a friend, and you go to jail with him or her for the drugs, and you're, you're found not guilty. You still got to pay a tax on it. One is civil, one is criminal. So because the criminal aspect of it says that you're no longer found guilty or you're not responsible for these drugs, but just lest they use the word constructive possession, meaning you was in some proximity or you had access to the drug. But that's not necessarily proven either. So that person still has to pay a drug tax on something that they never had or possessed and was found not guilty or charged was dismissed. This is the Department of Revenue. This is not the criminal side of things. Yeah, and as soon as someone is arrested with a, with a, enough illegal substance, allegedly, to you really kick back a paycheck because some of this money comes back to the law enforcement agency. Seventy-five percent of the money comes back to the law enforcement agency. They tell the Department of Revenue, and then there's a firewall, and so the DOR and DPS don't talk to each other at all. And I've heard some stories, and I'm sure you've heard more about people who have had their cases dismissed, have had their charges dropped by prosecutors, have pled down to a lesser offense. It's discovered it was someone else's drugs. It's discovered it wasn't the drugs that the police thought it was. Mm-hmm. All different, which means you would owe a lot less money. The Logically, people think, oh, well, then you should be off the hook, but you're not. True. So so sometime last year, I interviewed eight, nine people from the state, across the state, from here, Raleigh, Greensboro, Charlotte, all of those areas. We made videos, we collected videos for this purpose because a lot of people are not aware. Again, that some people think, oh, a drug dealer just got his yacht or car took it. But that's not the issue. Okay, we have a young female right here in Wilmington, North Carolina, who was convicted of drugs. She went to prison, served her time, came home. She is a single mother. She owed $100,000 in taxes for the drugs. And again, while she was in prison, not knowing that she had taxes, those taxes begin to draw interest. So when you come home, you're thinking you're completely in the clear. I served my time. I paid my debt to society until you get a job and you work all year long and you're looking for your income tax check and they tell you your check has been garnished. And then on top of that, they goes to her employer and tells her employer, hey, she owed tax money, so we're going to take half of her check. That right there is is a complete miscarriage of justice. And we can't use double jeopardy because one is civil and one is criminal. Not only that, it's a, it's a, it's a family in Raleigh that I interviewed one of the sisters. 
police go in the house. Her brother has drugs. She's in the house. Her brother, they get pounds of weed. Her case gets dismissed. Everybody in the house case gets dismissed. Her brother takes the charge. He goes to prison. He owns up to it. These are completely innocent people whatsoever. Nothing they had nothing to do with the drugs. However, they was charged with it. She owed tens of thousands of dollars on that marijuana. Now, get this. Each one of those individuals that was in that house owes tens of thousands of dollars in taxes. So it's like four people. The, the government are, is taxing four people, three of them innocent, one of them actually guilty for these drugs. Now they're getting hundreds of thousands of dollars based off of one bus and one individual taking a charge. You have people who just can't pay this money. They'll never be able to pay this money in, a, in, in no lifetime because it's always drawing interest. They're already poor. They're already behind the eight ball. So how is it these people are supposed to pay this money back? That's just simple as that. One of the things I, I came across in, in researching this law is that the way it actually works is when you are first arrested by whatever law enforcement agency is doing it, uh, they notify the Department of Revenue, and DOR sends the suspect a letter. And they send it to whatever address the law enforcement agency gives them. So have you heard stories of people where it went to the wrong house or they didn't get it in the detention center or anything like that? One of, one, of the, one of the individuals that I interviewed out of Greensboro, they sent the letter to an address that they had from him 10 years ago. They don't go and research and try to find out a person, if a person has changed their address or anything. They just go in their system see the address, send the letter. That person don't even know about this letter. You know, they, they don't know until one day he just happened to be, he didn't been to prison. He served, what, over five years, I want to say. And again, while he's in prison, it's, 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 it's drawing interest. He comes home, he's standing in his yard one day, and they have drug tax people to come to confiscate his cars. He comes out the door, he see people, police, everybody taking his property, and he's trying to figure out what's going on. Well, we sent you a letter. Where at? Because here's my residence right here. I've never received a letter here. I've been living here X amount of years, and I never received a letter here. So why are y'all taking my property? Why are y'all taking stuff from me? Ultimately, he ended up having to go through a process where he actually started trying to pay it off. You know, just, just, just so he can get them out of his way, he's trying to pay it off. I have one individual where there's an offer and compromise that you can do. Now, here's the thing about the offer and compromise. They might say, okay, if you owe $30,000 in taxes, give us $10,000, but you got to pay that $10,000 off at one time before at a certain period of time. What if people can't pay that? So that still puts them back behind the eight ball. It's like settling credit card debt. <laughs> It's worse than selling credit yeah. cards. Well, yeah. So that was that seemed to be one of the issues is that there is like this 45-day window where you can contest it if your case is thrown out or, you know, the drug test comes back negative. But from everything I've seen, a, a drug test may not happen until months and months into until the investigative process. You're arrested and then they're still investigating. Or, for example, your case might get dropped two years later. I mean, we see it all the time, right? People... They, they'll take a plea to a lesser charge or they will get their cases dropped. But it's years and years, way more than 45 days. Mm -hmm. So it seems like timeline-wise, it would be really tough to 
get in that 45 day. And the other thing is that obviously if you don't get the letter, you don't know, you can contest it. And the last piece of this is that from what I've heard, people who successfully negotiate with the Department of Revenue in general have a lawyer, like a good lawyer. That costs money. That costs money. So it just seems like there's at least three different impediments. There's actually finding out you have the assessment. There's having enough evidence to dispute the assessment. And then there's having a lawyer who knows how to talk to the department member. Because i got to be honest, if I was arrested with you know an unauthorized substance right now, I wouldn't know how to negotiate with the department member. If I did that pro se, I think yeah. I would not go far. So so I'm going to give, because something you touched on about like the drugs and the, the same young lady that owe $100,000. The guy that was handling the drugs in the, the department, the forensic guy or whatever his title was, he got fired for misappropriation of drugs on her case. If you go back and look, I can't remember his full name. He was fired. So You're talking about William Peltzer. Exactly. Who was fired for, uh, publicly we were told that they were uh, failed to calibrate lab equipment, but there's been allegations that there was missing heroin. See what I'm saying? Yes. So when in, in cases like that right there, and this is for the person who said uh, a poli- they just took a person's boat or a person's drug dealer's car. No. What about that? They still have to follow the law. Why wasn't this case dismissed? Why wasn't this case thrown out? And why should she pay taxes on something that you can't even tell how much drugs it was? And all of it disproportionately affects the black community. When you got drugs at a high rate, so-called high rate in certain communities, when we all know that white people use drugs like as a person looking like me to use drugs, but you you concentrate in one area, so therefore you, you, you're going in certain communities looking for individuals to be able to arrest so you can get money to come back into the department. Under state law, 75% of, of the revenue that comes from this, which isn't just the tax, as you pointed out, it's the interest on the tax, it's money they can get from taking property and selling it, garnishing people's checks, their, you know, their pay. 75% of that comes back to the law enforcement agency that initiates the investigation that leads to the arrest that notifies the Department of Revenue. So some of the critics of this program have said, well, if you're looking to make some money off this project, you're going to go where you think you can find people who probably won't be able to get out of paying this tax. That, that's, a, that's it in a nutshell. Okay, well, we need to take a quick break, but we'll be back in just a moment to continue our conversation with Daquan Peters. You're listening to The Newsroom from WHQR Public Media. Please stay with us. Welcome back to the newsroom. I'm Ben Shockman. Talking now with Daquan Peters, New Hanover coordinator for the Second Chance Alliance, about North Carolina's unauthorized substance tax. Now, Daquan, you were talking about other ways the revenue from this tax could be spent. When you 75% of all of the money made from the arrest goes back to the law enforcement agency that made it, why not put that money back into the community that it comes from? Why not give people opportunities what about the child whose parent is incarcerated or the, the, the child whose parent 
was found not guilty for some drugs, and their parent cannot afford to send them to college because they're taking all of her money in taxes for something that she never possessed in the first place. Why not be able to put that money back into the community? We all know what community this money comes from. So all the critics that sit back and say, well, well, this is a drug dealer, this is a drug dealer. What about when your son grows up and go to college and he's riding in a car with a friend and they smoking marijuana, which a lot of these kids think is not too bad, and they find that their friend has 12 pounds of marijuana in their trunk, right? And you know your child is innocent. So when they, your child charges is dismissed, and them people come back years later talking about your child owed tens of twenty thousand dollars in taxes. How would you feel about that? Would you criticize this law then? Would you say that that ain't right? So it only takes for something to happen to certain people for them to realize the impact that some of these laws have. That's what I'm saying in essence to all of these people that's saying, well, they should pay taxes, or they should do this, or they drug dealers, or they this, or they that. Stop doing that. We're still human beings. We still are people. I just want people to understand that this is not right. This is just something that was created from the war on drugs to be able to suppress people and be talking about certain people. My thing is this right here. I'm going to always advocate for, for those who can't advocate for themselves. So when people hear me talk and they hear me say things, yeah, I speak from a passion. But I also speak from a directly impacted perspective because every time I turn around, something with the criminal legal system shows that everything they did was directly, directly towards us. The numbers and the data and statistics shows and prove. I sat in prison and listened to a lot of senators admit that the 100 to 1 crack cocaine ratio was disproportionately affecting the black community, that it was a racial disparity within the guidelines. This drug tax is a barrier. This drug tax is a collateral consequence for some of those who never even possessed drugs or had nothing to do with the drugs. I just wanted people to understand that. Yeah, and I I think your point is resonates with some people that over the last 10 years, for example, it's been around $800,000 has come into the Wilmington Police Department and closer to $2 million through the New Hanover County Sheriff's Department, and that's just our county. So certainly... People have suggested a mental health counselor, you know, other other resources, you know, and the the statute is pretty vague about what you can use this for. Mm -hmm. It's it's supposed to be used for law enforcement purposes. So if a police department wants to hire a counselor instead of a cop, that falls under the statute. Okay, so let's just address the elephant in the room. Okay, please. I don't want people to think that I'm vilifying the police. I'm not coming in here waving a flag talking about defund the police. I'm not even saying that the police department shouldn't have their museum with the artifacts representing their comrades, their fallen soldiers. I'm not against any of that. The only thing I'm against is them using money that's being funded off of the back of black and brown poor people, marginalized communities. That's my only thing. The best thing that I appreciate the chief telling me is he, he didn't go buy guns. He didn't go buy armored weapons. He didn't do any of that. He wanted to be able to, to show the artifacts of his comrades. And I get that. I'm not against him doing that. But we need to have a conversation about that money. It's, that money can be used in so many different areas. They say they want to bridge the gap. So, okay, let's show you how to bridge the gap that has been wedged between us. You understand what I'm saying? So it's not an attack on the police. This is 
me and a lot of organizations and a lot of individuals who have been impacted by this just want to say, hey, you can do more for the community with this money that comes out of this community than you can by putting a museum in the police department. Every single person in the community that I've spoken with is against that. Like I said, you can create a scholarship fund for children of incarcerated parents and still probably have money left over. You acknowledging that is a gap, but you're not acknowledging why it's a gap. You know, you, you, between the black community and police. Yes. Yeah. Not just the black community, but poor marginalized community, because you have poor white people that live in these same communities with us now. All we're asking is to at least have a conversation with some of us about how we feel this money can better our community, can better the lives, can change the trajectory of a lot of these young brothers and sisters out here. The other issue is addressing the actual drug tax itself, the actual legislation that I believe it was back in 1989 that created it. So tell me a little bit about So so I'm going to say this. For the past, like I said, the past year, we go to the General Assembly, North Carolina Second Chance Alliance. I can tell you for a fact, I'm telling you personally, based off a conversation that I had sitting in a lot of these senators' office, I'm not going to sit here and name them, but I'm telling you straight up and down, don't none of them know about the drug tax. Here's what goes on at the General Assembly. You a senator. You like to push criminal justice reform bills. You sponsor one of my bills. I could just say, hey, Ben, here's a bill that I'm about to push to the floor. Okay, I signed off. Yeah, you signed off on the last one for me, so I signed off on this one for you. Without even looking at the bill to see the harms that this bill can actually do. Having conversations with a lot of those senators, they don't know that this drug tax is what it is. Because every time we mention it to them, they're in shock. Like, what? For real? And then when you tell them, hey, a person can get... The charge could be dismissed, person found not guilty, all of that, and they still owe taxes. Really? That's that's the conversation that goes on at the General Assembly about this drug tax. I think unless someone like you has spent the time in the General Assembly or really talked at length with a representative, they don't understand there's hundreds of bills every year. And most representatives know about the ones that are in their committee or, or directly affect you know, something that, that the city or a county asked them to do. My, my question, I guess, is have you sensed any appetite to change it? Yes. Okay. Yes, I will. I, I will say that I've sensed a lot of appetite to change it, but however, the ones that want to change it don't have the power to do it. You know, that's, that's a, it's a lot of that going on at the General Assembly. They'll tell you straight, hey, I'm with it, but it's only so much I can do. I don't have this here. I don't have that. And right now, this is not about D's, R's, you know, or any of that. This is about people. This is about taxing poor people. This, this is about you funding a system uh, uh, off of poor people. That's what this system is funded off of. You thinking you just got over paying your debt to society, and bam, you hit with you don't get your income tax check, and we take a half of your check. This is the reality that the critics don't know about. You know, and, and, and it's sad. Every person that I interviewed were African-American individuals. Three of them were single mothers. I don't know? mean this in the legal sense because I understand it is the criminal and civil are, are separate. But to philosophically, it feels like there's a due process problem here, too. It's always a due process problem with the criminal legal system. <laughs> That's what makes me want to stop this so bad to just say, hey, think about what we're doing here. 
what about this sister, man? What about this sister's children? What if she couldn't get them children the necessities that they needed for school? That's about to start now because they're taking half her check. She don't even make $15 an hour. You know? Get this. As of October 2020, 33 states, including Texas, South Dakota, Utah, Arizona, do not have an illicit drug tax. Why is North Carolina still holding on to this? Texas doesn't have one. Texas now. You talking about the place Juneteenth was birth. <laughs> Why doesn't North Carolina do away with this? We don't have enough time today to have two other big conversations <laughs> here. But I, I hear you. One is about is about the relationship between law enforcement and low-income communities everywhere. I mean, you go up to West Virginia, the color of your skin doesn't necessarily matter. You can see the relationship between poor white folk in Appalachia and the cops mm-hmm. ain't great either. But it's got a specific racial dynamic in Wilmington, to be sure. But the other issue that you've touched on a couple times is what do we want to see after we punish someone for a crime? It's, it's no compassion. It's no forgiveness. And it's no rehabilitation. I've been to prison four times. Am I bragging about that? Am I proud of that? No, by no means. I'm not the only individual around here like that. Just give some people a chance, man. Just think about that forgiveness. When You've done, everybody that's criticizing this has done something wrong to someone and needed forgiveness, you know, or, or empathy or, or and all of those things. We're not begging. We just said, give us a fair chance. Give us what's rightfully ours. That's it. I think that's a good place to leave it. Daquan Peters, thank, thank you so much for you. your time. Thank you for having me, brother. Okay. Well, before we wrap up this edition of The Newsroom, I want to touch on the other side of this issue. As I said at the top of the show, we wanted to give law enforcement a fair shake so we could understand their point of view on the tax and the ways in which the revenue from that tax is used. So we asked to do an interview with both the Wilmington Police Department and the New Hanover County Sheriff's Office, but both declined. WPD issued a statement on the tax, which read in part, North Carolina drug tax funds have been utilized by WPD throughout the years and have helped alleviate the amount of tax dollars used by our department. These funds have helped us purchase equipment and training that has aided our department in providing high-quality service and protection for the citizens of Wilmington. The funds also allow our team to produce public service announcements that educate the community on life-saving topics. These are just a few examples of the things that the funds have been utilized for. Now, the department declined to offer further specifics and suggested that we file a public records request, a process that, given the four to six week backlog in the city clerk's office, is kind of impractical. But it's worth noting that with a little digging, you can find a few examples of what WPD does with the revenue, since the department needs permission from city council for larger ticket items. We were able to find seven requests to city council over the last 10 years. About $120,000 went to standalone trailers, $5,000 went to a DEA training course, and $3,000 went to respirator masks to protect officers against fentanyl. And there were a few outreach programs, closer to the kind of thing Daquan Peters was talking about. About 10 years ago, $2,500 went to an anti-gang basketball program, and back in 2018, $15,000 went to an anti-gang effort for teenage girls called Port City Supergirls, but both of these programs appear to have fallen by the wayside. 
When it comes to the New Hanover County Sheriff's Office, it's harder to know how the tax revenue is being utilized, since the Sheriff's Office can spend that money without permission from the Board of Commissioners, which otherwise approves the Sheriff's Office budget. The Sheriff's Office did issue a statement on the tax. Quote, there are a lot of positive attributes to the tax program. The tax program allows us to pay for training, equipment, and helps us afford certain equipment that we normally couldn't afford simply in our budget. This program is audited annually to ensure accuracy. Sheriff Ed McMahon issued his own statement, which is a bit more direct and apparently responds to some of the criticisms of the unauthorized substance tax. Quote, if people weren't engaging in illegal drug activity, we wouldn't have this program. If you don't want to be taxed, don't participate in illegal drug activity. End quote. So there's that. As for our local legislative representatives, State Senator Michael Lee said he was aware of the issue but hadn't heard of any pending bills or discussions about updating the law. State Representative Ted Davis forwarded a response from his staff saying basically the same thing. There was nothing new on this front. State Representative Deb Butler also said she had not heard any conversations about reforming or repealing the tax, but added that it merits a discussion. Maybe today's show will start that discussion. We'll see. But for now, that's all the time we have. Thanks to Phil Dixon at the UNC School of Government for his insight, Jonathan Holbrook for his eye-opening 2019 blog post, and Daquan Peters for spending his time with us for this episode. Also thanks to the WHQR technical team, Ken Campbell and Jonathan Furnell. If you missed any part of this program, you can find it at whqr.org. And you can also find it as a podcast, pretty much everywhere you can find podcasts. If you have thoughts or comments about today's program or ideas for a future show, email us at newsroom at whqr.org. I'm Ben Schachman. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us for the next edition of The Newsroom.